This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with John Pantalone. John is the owner and operator of Amber Oaks Ranch down in Texas. Amber Oaks prioritizes regenerative practices, and we discuss John's story on how he went from homesteading to regenerative ranching. I think you'll like this one. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Have another great podcast lined up for you guys today we have john pantalone on the line from amber oaks ranch john how's it going good to talk to you again doing well yeah you've been pretty busy yeah we've been busy working on this podcast putting out information for the folks and it's always a pleasure to talk to people like you who are you know have boots on the ground so excited to get into this a little we also have our co-host ryan here ryan how's it going awesome i'm excited you got a hat on today decided to mix it up um, for the aesthetics, but I'm excited to get in. This will be a good topic. Awesome. So John definitely, you know, embodies decentralization and kind of really is, you know, on the ground doing a lot of the hard work, uh, with his ranch as well as, you know, valuing the Bitcoin and, and hard money. So we'll get into that a bit, but John, I'm, I'm curious on your, your backstory a little bit. Yeah. Maybe you could shed some light there, sure. how you got into owning your ranch and, valuing food and the quality as, as well as decentralization? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, this, the journey started a long, long time ago, really with um, uh, seeing a lot of things around me. I, I spent some time in Bosnia during the civil war in, uh, in early, uh, early nineties, mid nineties. Um, and then nine uh, 11, <clears throat> we were living outside of New York and it, you know, you, you, I just, the way people responded um, and then really the, the nail in the coffin was uh, Hurricane Katrina and just realizing um, how unprepared people were and how dependent everybody was on a system that was utterly broken. Uh, so um, just prior to Katrina, we were we were living in, a, in your typical, uh, you know, HOA suburban home, a couple thousand square feet, golf course, all that stuff. Um, but my kids, uh, you know, I had young kids at the time. Um, you know, all of their friends, every moment of every hour was programmed with, you know, dance and baseball and, and, and karate and all of these things. And, you know, kids just weren't allowed to, um, uh, learn and, and develop any type of uh, independence. Um, you, you know, if everything wasn't spoon fed to them, they didn't know what to do, right? They broke down in, in, a, in a hysteria. Um, <clears throat> so we, we had an opportunity to move south of Houston, uh, and, and we purchased seven acres where we started homesteading. Um, it was a, uh, it, my, my in-laws lived there at the time. And, and when we went to visit, you know, the kids were always, they were outside, they were riding four wheelers, they were playing in the mud. Um, and, and the most shocking thing to me was, uh, you know, we saw these other kids, uh, it, it always rains down, down on the Gulf coast. So. Um, these other kids had taken a hood of a car and flipped it upside down, tied a rope to a four wheeler, and they were basically mud surfing with, with the four wheeler and, and the hood. So pretty awesome. And, uh, and so that was, that was kind of like, wow, you know, this is the way kids are supposed to live. They're supposed to go out and do things. So, um, 
so again, we ended up purchasing seven acres there. Uh, we, we started a homestead where we raised uh, uh, lots of animals, uh, rabbits, chickens, ducks, geese, sheep, pigs, a um, couple cows. Uh, we ended up, you know, I learned how to butcher all of those animals, how to you know, garden and, and preserve food and, and uh, curing meats and canning and all of that stuff. So really, that's kind of where I cut my teeth on um, uh, independent living, if you will. And, and uh, of course, we had an abundance of food, so we were sharing it with uh, folks from our church and, and friends and neighbors. Um, and so when the kids graduated high school, uh, you know, we didn't, you know, we just looked around. And it's like, why are we here? Right. It's real humid, lots of mosquitoes. Um, and so uh, Molly's mom and dad, uh, my wife's, uh, uh, well, I guess my in-laws, uh, they live in central Texas, about uh, 20 minutes from where we're at. So we wanted to move back home, get closer to them. Uh, and, and in the process, wanted to buy a little bit more land. And so we, uh, we, we found 70 acres that we really thought was beautiful. And, and I thought I could, you know, basically scale up what I was doing from a homesteading perspective to what I would call a farmstead perspective. So trying to make a little bit of money off of, uh, off of the operation here. So we, we've been doing this now since uh, 2016. We bought raw land. We built the house, started uh, building infrastructure, um, ended up building the house myself, did pretty much all of the infrastructure, uh, putting systems in, got some cattle. Now we now have uh, uh, pigs, sheep, cows. Uh, we have egg layers and broilers, and we raise turkeys for Thanksgiving. And so, um, so yeah, we do a, we do a, quite a pretty good bit of business. And of course, I, I still have a uh, off farm job uh, to help out there. But yep, that's what we're up to. That's awesome. And I just wanted to quickly, you know, before we dive into the details, you know, you're, you're talking about seeing kind of the reliance on, you know, the system and, you know, having kids who are not really free to express yeah. themselves and learn on them on, on their own, which is really a powerful way to think about it. But, you know, I'm assuming you had pretty much no experience in raising animals yeah. or doing any of the homesteading thing. So, you know, how long did it take for you to just like fully dive into this seven acres? Like, were you ruminating on it for like a year or two years? And then you just had this moment. Um, no. and, and what was that? Just walk us through that thought process yeah, of like a good committing to this sort of lifestyle. Yeah. So, so um, I grew up you know, basically, well, I started outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, and moved here to Central Texas. And just you know, my folks weren't into agriculture or anything. But uh, in my in, in, when I was in high school, well, let me start back before that. So my dad built his house back in the fifties, and that's the house that I grew up in, and and currently my sister owns and lives in. And so it's been in our family now for I don't know seventy years, I guess sixty years. And, and so my dad always did pretty much everything, right? He, he could do anything and everything. And that example really instilled in me just this idea that, well, sure, why can't I, right? There's no reason I can't. Um, and I think that's a, the, you know, a, a big mental barrier that most people uh, struggle with. It's like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Well, you know, you can learn, right? And so just go do it and figure it out and don't be afraid to break a few things and, and, uh, you know, but it's all for educational purposes, right? Consider it, uh, consider it a win if you, if you learn anything. Um, so anyway, with that kind of a, a mindset, um, when I was in high school, my dad bought uh, uh, 15 acres. And of course, we, we let the previous uh, farmer 
uh, continue to manage that land. But but he built himself a workshop and, and you know, we were always fixing cars and, and stuff like that. So having been, um, you know, I lived in uh, rental houses and then finally we bought a house uh, in, in a homeowners association. There was just, you can't do anything like that, right? I couldn't even park my boat um, at my house, right? So, so I really wanted that space. And so really that's what lured me to the seven acres. But then once you get all of this land, it's like, well, I don't want to cut that grass, right? And, and in this case, I, I like to taste the lamb. So let's get some sheep. And, and you just kind of, you know, go from there. Of course, like I said before, I, I, had, this, I had this realization that, uh, that things were not normal. Uh, I really like to be independent. I like to do my own things. I like to, um, uh, I'm a serial hobbyist. And so, you know, I just do hobby after hobby after hobby until I get to about 85, 90% proficiency. And then I get bored with that and I move on to something else. So, so the idea of going, you know, starting with different animals, uh, I was really into permaculture. I was learning a lot about that. Um, being able to apply those principles to where I was able to make my, my systems more efficient, saving on feed bills, you know, all of that stuff and seeing the harmony um, and the synchronicity between systems and how they interact with each other, uh, you know, really tickled my, my engineering mindset. Um, and, and so, you know, being able to tinker with stuff like that and make things better uh, was just, you know, icing on the cake. And so I was able to feed my family and then satisfy my itch around, uh, you know, my engineering niche, if you will. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of where, uh, why we got the seven acres and then how we rolled into that. Wow, that's like an incredible story. It actually reminds me um, a little reminiscent of when we interviewed Tim Joseph from Maple Hill Creamery and how he sort of, I mean, you built all these things basically from scratch, had to learn all these skills and and actually now it's paid off and it's become in a wisdom that you're passing on to your own children, which I think is extremely valuable. I think that's an extremely valuable skill in and of itself just to sort of teach your children to be able to take on tasks that they don't know how to handle right. and learn for themselves. I think that's it's such a skill that I think is not necessarily lost per se, but I feel like it's definitely been been diminished as far as like like you mentioned if if you don't know what to do, I think people a lot of people today are especially younger folks like myself or younger are super afraid of tackling anything that may be something completely unknown to them or something they deem to be too difficult, but we need to remember that ancestrally, we've tackled so many huge astronomical tasks. Like I, I think about the settlers that came out to Salt Lake City, Utah, where I'm at right now, and thinking of all the struggles that they had to do to create basically their own settlements and all these all these crazy things that I don't think you could get young people here to do today if they had to like recreate it. Like if some atom bomb went off and we had to start from scratch, I think we'd be in a, a big a bit of a mess. So it'd be it'd be sort of interesting to see. And it, it's something that certainly rings true for my upbringing. My dad was super, super handyman kind of style guy. He grew up in the country, knew how to build lots of things, knew how to fix cars that were beaten down and broken up and sort of could build stuff from scratch. However, the only difference between uh, that story and, and perhaps your story is I honestly didn't get any of those skills from him. Um, whether it was sort of this uh, lack of teaching ability or he would often get frustrated with me trying to help me out and then be like, oh, I'll just do it myself because it's easier if I just do it versus teach you blank. But I also have to take some responsibility for that myself. I think about it a lot because I never took any initiative or interest in, say, learning how to even learn the basic skill of 
changing a tire, which I've only learned in like the last five years in my mid twenties. So it's like these very basic things that I just never took the initiative. I think that's, that's sort of a thing that needs to happen as I feel like people need to have their own initiative to learn new skills. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a predominant thought out in the ethos of modern culture due to the convenience that we have now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I would say it's, um, so I didn't, I didn't really learn a lot. I just, from my, my, my parents and I didn't teach my kids either. Um, I, I like your father was, you know, oftentimes frustrated and, or they would just, you know, fade away. Um, and so how much they actually learned, uh, is a whole nother question, but it's the, um, it's, it's, it's the mental block that they can overcome and you can overcome, right? So it's not too late, right? And so I think the challenge is, is that kids today aren't exposed to any adversity. And, and it's that overcoming of adversity that gives them the strength and confidence to know that they can try and fail, but they won't get hurt. Or even if they do get hurt, they'll learn something, right? And so uh, and, and they'll have successes and failures, right? When they try things and, and they face adversity and they overcome adversity. And there's no greater feeling than facing adversity and overcoming it, right? And then if it beats you down, then you get pissed off and you try again. And I don't think our youth today are exposed to any of that, right? We, we coddle them, we program their existence. And when I was a kid, you know, you didn't come home until the streetlights came on. And so, you were out there breaking things, you know, fighting w- with one another. Um, you, you know, we didn't have, you, you had to figure out how to fix your own bicycle out in the middle of nowhere, right? And so you just had to, by, by force of nature, overcome little adversities. And, and that's just not the case anymore. And so you learn by having to. And, and, uh, and so I think that's the missing piece. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, It would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Obviously, I agree with everything you just said. It's a big, big sticking point for for me as well. Do hard things. Mm -hmm. You'll become a better person mentally, physically, stronger. But the problem is, like Ryan said today, there's just so many, you know, modern conveniences Mm -hmm. So we don't really have to do any of these things. There's, you know, just an easy way call AAA or, you know, someone will come fix it for yeah. you. There's all these apps. I mean, most people aren't even putting themselves in these situations. So um, to me, I, a lot of people get this adversity. That's why I think the, you know, the gym has become so popular. Just like working out is, is just a way to kind of force that. Um, but how do you think? you know, we can get back to, you know, raising children in this fashion? Is it kind of everyone, you know, needs to go back to, a, you know, more rural lifestyle? Or, or what are some simple ways you think people could just program adversity or, or, or get into that sort of mindset to, to build themselves up? Yeah, I mean, the obvious thing, obvious thing is sports, right? And so if you have a good coach that challenges you, um, and, and, the, and the beauty about sports is, is the camaraderie, of having to do this with other people and, and that teamwork that you learn and the ability to rely on one another, you suffer and endure that pain together and you become victors together. And those bonds of, of brothership, if you will, um, they don't ever go away. 
and, and so that's why people, you know, well, it used to anyway, um, you know, when you would go into basic training, you would, you would, you know, join the army like I did. You suffer these things together with, with your cohorts and you build lifelong bonds. And I don't know, I don't know if that's a reality anymore, uh, in, in the military or not. Um, and, and I would like to think that, the, you know, good sports programs still instill that. Uh, but, but that's, that's the only, um, that's the only proxy for, from an organizational perspective that I can see. Um, you know, I, I used to be involved in boy scouts. It, it, that doesn't happen there. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't see that a lot. You know, it used to be big families too, right? I'm the youngest of seven. And so big families, you would, you would have to, uh, you know, you, your your parents were busy. You know, you would have five or six siblings that needed attention as well, and so you just had to do things on your own. And you learned how to fold your own clothes because nobody was going to fold them for you, right? You learned how to cook your own food because nobody was going to cook it for you. So um, those things uh, we can replicate those, and and I think lots of folks are doing that now. And whether it be moving back to the land to do it, or just I mean, you can do it, uh, you know, in, in your community as well. So. Uh, but it's something that we certainly need to focus on. One thing that, that kind of came to mind when when you were talking about that is I think you're right. I think you're right as far as as what's going on in in modern society. I think there's also needs to be sort of this. I think there does on some level need to be like a genuine curiosity. I'm definitely one of those people that if I'm not curious, I have a hard time learning it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that I think we can instill in people to have that genuine curiosity about, you know. Uh, learning things for themselves and also just going in on their passions. I mean, so many, like we talked about fear a little bit earlier, but I think so many people are afraid of failure that that needs to be sort of almost re rethought about as sort of like you learn. I mean, you, everyone learns from failure. It's like the best way to learn is by messing up. And so I sort of love to ask you this question is like, you're coming from basically not doing any of this stuff to going into full like regenerag and all these sort of things what were some major roadblocks that you had hurdles in the beginning that maybe people should think about or maybe think about ducks they need to get into a row before they want to start anything similar to what you are doing? Because I think everyone loves the idea of like getting some land, having some animals. I talk about this with my girlfriend's family like literally every day. But I'm sure there are things I'm not thinking about that I need to think about before ever even just like going out there and just spending a bunch of money on land and thinking it's all going to work out and be fine and dandy because we hear the success stories, but I think it's about the roadblocks that create those stories in the end. Uh, yeah. So, so before you make that move, right, you, you can use this time right now to start developing skills. And so there's lots of opportunities where you can go out and, and help other farmers and ranchers and, and, and learn some of these skills. Uh, there's lots of YouTube videos, like I'm learning how to weld right now. Uh, I bought a, a lathe in a mill because I want to learn how to be a machinist, right? Or, or at least fix stuff uh, out here on the farm. I, I, I would never claim to be a welder or machinist. Um, but, uh, you know, if I, can, if I can save myself a trip into town, uh, you know, by being able to do some, some work on my own, um, it's well worth it. So, so there's technical colleges, there's YouTube videos, there's, you know, mentors out there that would love to teach these skills. Uh, the other thing I would say is, it's important to get your finances straight. This is not a cheap lifestyle. Uh, owning uh, animals and equipment uh, is, you have to have deep pockets until it gets up and running, um, particularly with things like cattle. Uh, you know, it's a very long payback period and it, and it takes a lot of infrastructure. 
And but those are that's another skill though that needs to be learned, right? Um, and I'm not sure that we, we we don't teach that at all. So you know, making sure that you're able to manage your 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 income streams and your outflows and, and put some money in the bank. Um, for me, uh, I I bought houses. I would always buy the cheapest house and the ugliest house on the block, right? And then I would re, uh, renovate that. And then three years later, I would sell that, take the equity and do that again, right? And that's how I was able to build up enough bank uh, to purchase seven acres. And again, it was a very, uh, it wasn't a very good house. Um, but when we sold it uh, 10 years later, it was enough for me to be able to afford the 70 acres that I own now. And then I had developed those skills in, in remodeling houses, um, you know, five or six houses along our journey uh, to be able to build the house that we're in. It's kind of that low time preference, right? It, it aligns like you you already have this end vision, which first off, I think it's really important to establish. I think a lot of people, you know, goal setting and all that is great. Um, obviously, most people are, are very, you know, high time preference. Everything's on like the day to day, week to week. I mean, most people our age in their mid 20s are just looking forward to, you know, the weekend to get out of the corporate, you know, rat race uh, for two days and then, you know, just get drunk on the weekend and, and watch professional sports or whatever. Um, but then you also have, you do have people that are, are goal orientated, but for me, it's not even like the short-term goals are as important as kind of just having a, a long-term vision. Um, and as you create, you know, the path forward, which will diverge in many directions, that end vision is still coming into clarity. But if you have that vision, like you're saying, building up these skills now will be, you know, it'll just make it that much easier because I do think like Ryan's saying, people don't really understand how much work it is to be fully self-sufficient, to be fully decentralized, to homestead. Um, you know, you're talking about a jack of all trades. Like you're saying, I, I love the term you're using, you know, you're, you're a hobbyist, uh, a serial hobbyist, because I, I feel that way with a lot of things too. And it's like, you just need to get to a certain level of proficiency and then you're kind of good. You got the most, you know, juice, uh, squeeze out of that. And then you can be really well-rounded, which you, which you have to be. Right. So, you know, I, I'm curious in general, um, is, is there a good way to start these things? I feel like a lot of people also, and they might have a lot of money, but even if you have a lot of money, you could put it all yeah. down the drain by biting off way more than you can chew. And I, I think that's how a lot of these situations often go. Um, so you kind of started, it seemed like a good transition, right? Like you started pretty small, right? You started at seven acres and this was purely homestead, like no business in mind externally, it seemed like, and you learned a lot of these skills and then you kind of grew to the 70 acres and moved on. And now, like you said, it's a farmstead. You, you have a business, you sell externally. Uh, do you think that's a good way for people to start? Because I know a lot of people, including myself, it's like, oh, I want to just find, you know, 200 acres, beautifully pristine. Uh, it's for my forever home. But in reality, having that flexibility might be important. Actually, starting smaller might be even more important. I would definitely recommend starting smaller. Um, you know, three acres is a lot to work and, and you can grow a lot of food on three acres. You can provide yourself a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, less dependency on the outside systems with something as small as three acres. And even if you only have, you know, and half an acre, 
you can raise quail and and uh, rabbits in your garage, right? You don't need to have any land for that. Uh, you just got to start with something. And so, and even if you don't even have a garage, right? If you have a kitchen, you could start, you could go at the end of the farmer's market, you can go to all of the vegetable farmers and you can buy all of their leftover carrots and beans and tomatoes, right? And you can start learning how to preserve food. You can start canning, right? And so those skills, so, you know, really what you need to have, what you need to bring to the table is a passion for learning and a desire to break free of the systems that are enslaving us. And I think those two things are all that you really need to bring to the table. The rest will follow. It may take a long time. It may take, you know, your entire lifetime. I'm not done learning, right? I'm still learning. I'm still growing my business. I'm still uh, acquiring new skills, et cetera. Uh, But that passion for learning um, and and the motivation to, um, to, to take control of your own destiny are the two things that you really need to bring to the table. And if you have that, then you can, you can make it. That's actually a really good statement too, of taking control of your own destiny. I like that because I have this conversation, I think every, at least every week when I hang out with my, my younger brother who just graduated college and we talk about what we want to do with our future, like where we see ourselves in five years, 10 years. And I've, I've sort of come to this conclusion. I've said this before on the podcast though, that I don't think a lot of people really do put in that thought of what their what they want their life to look like. In fact, the conversation I have all the time with with my brother is I need to find a job. Not me saying this, my brother's kind of saying this, but um I was like this too a couple of years ago when I graduated college, but it's just like I need to find a job that makes X amount of money so that in 40ish years I can retire and then sort of start my life. And I feel like that's sort of the cycle that is repeated from from people going and, and going through the standard public school system, then college. And that's sort of like we're, we're, we're grown to be bred to go to the office, work for somebody else, retire, and then, then start our life. And I feel like over the last couple of years, there's been this mindset shift in a very in a larger portion of the population that's like, man, all of this system that I've grown up in could crash like that from anything. Uh, bank system, virus stuff, like any of this stuff. I feel like it's shown the real shakiness of the the floorboards that we've been sitting on. And so I think a lot more people are open to the idea of of having this sort of learner's mindset and really going at things that are much more difficult in the beginning, not necessarily the standard path sort of the black sheep path. And so I like seeing that as well. Um, so I think, like you said, it's all about being open to learning. And I think that's also one of the most difficult uh, skills too. But I think one thing people often wonder about, and I've had this conversation with other people that are, other people that are in similar fields to you right now, where they've, they've done this, they've sort of achieved uh, part of their dream, they're still learning, they're still building. But there's always the talk about profitability because everyone we've seemed to talk to is basically just like breaking even on, on what they're doing. So it's truly like you have to be in love with the lifestyle, sort of the takeaway to make it work. It's not like you're making a quick buck sort of thing. And that's the get quick rich or get rich quick kind of thing. So I'd love to sort of know about as comfortable as you are talking about it, talking about sort of like, what are the realities of like the, the, the return on what you're doing? Yeah. Because I believe it's like what you're doing is you're, you may be making it, but it's like, you're really going for the lifestyle and that's, that's the goal. So you mentioned that, you know, this, this concept of, uh, of going, you know, getting, graduating college, getting a job, you know, working a corporate job, making a lot of money. Um, I did all of that. Right. And so, and I'm doing all of that. I, like I said, I still work for, um, you know, a fortune 500 company. Um, 
Uh, and so I, my generation definitely had that. I mean, there was no other option. The internet didn't exist, right? Uh, but, and I think you, you referenced this, today, there's just so many opportunities to make money outside of that model. And you guys are doing that here with your podcast. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of folks out there um, making a lot of money, uh, maybe not enough to, to survive on, um, but certainly enough to augment and, and provide that, uh, that, that second source of income just as a security backup in case you lose that corporate job, right? Um, so I'm not advocating that people just throw in the towel and, and move out into the woods because, yes, to answer your, your, your fundamental question there, there's not a lot of money in it. Um, I, I, I consider myself to be rather successful. And last year, I figured that I'm making $15 an hour on my farm. So... Uh, and, that, and that's probably a lot more than, than most people are making um, because they probably don't assess all of the costs. Um, but with, along with that $15 an hour, I do have an unlimited amount of proteins that I can eat, right? And so, uh, and every day is a vacation for me. I go out there and I get to work on my farm. I get to work with my animals. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a quality of life um, that, that it can't be valued. Uh, and then I get to learn. I get to continually learn. And, and so I don't, you know, and it, what is it? What is an education worth? Right. So if you if you look at it from all of that perspective, uh, I wouldn't do it any other way. Uh, but I would say, yes, set your expectations, you know, be realistic with your expectations. Um, it's probably good to partner up with somebody who has a, another source of income, a steady source of income with, you know, insurance and, and, and all of that stuff until you can get up you know, on your feet and, and make the system start paying for itself. Cause it does take a long time for you to see uh, some cash flow. Do you recommend keeping that part-time job to help augment? Cause I, you know, Joel Salatin often talks about if, if you have this part-time job, you're never going to be like fully committed. So I guess what's your rebuttal to that and, and how have you found success? Well, if you can make it work, right. If you can have two jobs. So I'm very fortunate in that. I have a, um, a, a work at you know, my home office and I have flexibility in my job. Um, but in my current situation, I, I didn't have that. Right. And so it's really a matter of what you're doing with your time and how can you capitalize on that. So if you're spending all weekend or in this case, you know, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and sometimes Monday night watching professional football, uh, you're not going to make it right. You know, there's, there's, um, you could be learning something during those periods as opposed to watching somebody else do something. Right. Uh, and so it's that type of mindset that's like, get off the couch, put the video games away and go make something of your life. Um, so I, I would disagree with Joel. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, he inherited a, a large portion of his family's land, right? And, and so did uh, Will Harrison, right? So um, we don't all have that that luxury. So you know, you've got to work with the the, the tools and and uh, and what you have available to you. And if if you really have a desire to um, break free of the, the the systems that are there, you have to figure out how to make that work. And if you jump in with both feet and, you, you know, you, you, you try to bankroll an operation without, not, without having enough cash in your pocket uh, to survive the transition and you don't know how to live on $15 an hour, then you're going to fail, right? And you're going to be frustrated and your expectations are set entirely too high. No, no, I was just going to say that's a good point because I think, I mean, it all goes back to, in my mind, like 
the right expectations, um, setting. I mean, it's about having everything kind of down on paper. And even if you don't know how it's exactly going to go for you, it's you still you still need a plan. And I feel like I mean I've done this a lot in the last like five six years where I had a rough idea of where I wanted to go, but I never actually put anything down on paper and set the steps in to get there. And of course, those steps sort of change naturally as you're going yeah. for them because there are things or roadblocks you wouldn't expect or things that you learn along the way that were completely wrong from what you initially set out. But I think it's it's about really getting the right setup in the beginning that that sets you up for ultimate success. And then it's just keep striving for that. One thing I wanted to ask you, and, and you've kind of already answered it a little bit, but when, when you are working, say, two jobs to sort of make this all feasible, which I think is smart, like it's, it's probably not the smartest idea to just drop everything and move to the woods as much as I would like to do. Um, how, how does that sort of, I mean, I, I, maybe it doesn't even exist, but there's a lot of talk about the, the work-life balance. It's like, how do you manage that? How do you keep things going on your on your corporate side to a level that's that's still good for them and good for you monetarily, but also build this? In my opinion, just to put it out there preferably, it's like that's when you make the days you aren't working or the time you're not working count. Like make your weekends a time to build on your passion yeah. and stuff like that and take advantage of that time. Um, I'm, I'm sure that might be part of your answer, but I was just curious sort of your process of, and as you're still doing it, how have you been balancing those things? I mean, you have family, you have work, and then you have other work too. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you have to commit to, uh, particularly in the growth stage, the establishment stage, you, you have to commit to, um, basically working 16 hour days at a minimum, right. To, to get things in place and established. And that may take, a year and it may take a lifetime. And, and for me, I pretty much always, um, you, you know, I, I, I've always worked a lot. I didn't really have my, my hobbies are my second job. And so is it really work? I don't know. You know, like I, I learned how to build furniture because we needed furniture. Well, that was kind of like a, a hobby. Um, and so I didn't mind doing that after work. And so I'd spend three or four hours, uh, you know, in the evening, uh, learning how to build furniture or, or what have you. Um, and so, uh, like I said before, you know, if you're, if you're watching other people do things like football or, or something else, are you really maximizing the amount of time that you have? So, so yeah, for me, uh, it, it does become, uh, so we do four farmers markets a week. Uh, fortunately my wife, uh, does three of those. Um, but even with her, it's like, it's a lot of work and she does all of the marketing and sales. Um, and then, you know, I've got a job and then I've got to go tend to the animals. I got to do my chores. I've got like this morning I, I went and, you know, ground grain for the pigs and had to fill up the feeder because it ran out. Um, so uh, it is a lot of work. Uh, but again, if you're, if you're enjoying what you're doing, then every day is a vacation. Right. And so, uh, I, I enjoy it. And I think it takes people like that. Uh, do I get frustrated and burned out? Absolutely. You know, could I use a few days off? Probably so. Um, but there's always tomorrow and you get to feeling better and you get a chance to do it all over again. I think that's a, just a beautiful way of, of looking at it. And, and yeah, people get too concerned and on the conveniences and, and they don't really maximize their time. I feel like I do it personally. I feel like I do a lot of stuff for my age, but I still feel like I could be so much better with productivity in terms of utilizing my time. So I think... What you're saying is, yeah, if, if you can monetize your passions or your hobbies, mm -hmm. 
that's just like a good way to do it. And I, that's the name of the game and what, you know, Ryan and I are trying to figure out of, of course, right now as well. But I want to dive more maybe into, you know, the specifics of your ranch, your management practices. So you're big on, you know, holistic management, regenerative agriculture. Was this always the case? When did you start learning about these management practices, their importance, and how did you begin to implement them? And then where are you at now and, and what have you learned? Yeah. So, so um, before we move off of that, so I'm 54 years old and my endurance is certainly waning, right? Uh, and so as young guys like you, I mean, there's really, you could be out there doing a whole lot more than I can, right? Um, and so, you know, I don't go to the gym. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's kind of my gym, uh, you know, going out there and, and moving bags of feet or what have you. So, so there is that point. Um, so, so to your question, um, I, I was really interested in permaculture as a, as a design philosophy. Um, and that's really what got me into the regenerative ag space. So we, um, you know, permaculture is all about having, making systems, um, uh, mimic nature and, and, and the symbiotic relationship between, uh, different systems and how they mimic nature. So when you kind of scale that up, um, not to say that permaculture doesn't scale and there's a lot of principles in permaculture that I still apply. But it really then it kind of moves into this regenerative ag space. Uh, and so what we do here on the ranch, um, you know, it's all about the soil, right? Because the soil makes the grass and the grass makes the, the, the muscle. And, uh, and so it's how can we maximize um, the health of the soil so that we can, uh, you know, produce the highest quality proteins. Um, and so we put a lot of energy into that. I just got um, uh, probably... I don't know, about 200 truckloads of mulch is being delivered now, wood chips, uh, that I'm going to let decompose and then I'm going to incorporate that into our, 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 our property. Uh, we have very sandy soil here. so. Um, but yeah, principles of, of uh, regenerative ag, you know, we practice rotational grazing, which is extremely important. Um, it enables the, uh, the grass to, um, you know, the cows or, or sheep, they'll, they'll eat you know, half of it. And then they'll move on somewhere else. And then it allows that grass to regrow, uh, building soil as it does it. Um, and then it also uh, helps control the parasites that the, the animals consume, which is just a natural part of nature. Um, by moving them off of that grass space to a fresh grass, um, they don't build up quite as, a, a, as large a parasite load. Um, we incorporate uh, you know, the pigs. And, and when the pigs are out there on pasture, and, and they, um, you know, do a little bit of rooting or whatnot, then I'll spread seed out there uh, and then that'll come up and then the sheep will go and eat that. Uh, and so that's kind of like one of your permaculture concepts uh, applied to regen ag. Um, but yeah, so, um, you know, water obviously is, is a big piece of that. And so we're fortunate to um, have a, a two and a half acre pond here. Uh, we get quite a lot of rain. So we are trying, I just bought a bulldozer so that I can put some uh, contours and swales on our property. Uh, and I'd like to plant some trees and do like a silvo pasture concept to where we can, I can get some more shade to the cattle in certain areas of our, our land. But also then that th those trees, the, uh, the leaf fall would be then food for um, the soil microorganisms, right? And then any kind of mass that would fall off of that would be food for my pigs. Uh, and so we can kind of incorporate these systems 
that are foundational to permaculture into regenerative agriculture uh, so that we're actually healing the land as opposed to, uh, you know, basically destroying it. Yeah, I mean, that's a big discussion that we've had on the podcast, too, is is the effects of things like monocrop agriculture on soil health and just soil health in general. And so that's where I think a lot of this stuff is actually really valuable. And uh, I thought something that was really interesting, too, that I didn't know before uh, interviewing another uh, regenerative ag uh, proponent, um, Mitch Dumkey, was that you can actually have different animals grazing on the same amount of land depending on the animal. So you could have like the same amount of cattle as I think it was sheep because they eat different parts of the grass. Is that right? Something like that? Uh, yeah, that, that is right. So so if you look at the total amount of animal units per acre, um, you know, if you're just running cattle only, uh, it'll be one number. But if you're running cattle and then sheep after them or in conjunction with them, um, you can actually increase the number of pounds you get off of the land because of that uh, harmonious relationship between the two animals, right? The, the cow will eat, um, you know, cer- certain grasses, uh, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, but the sheep are going to want to eat more of the forbs, the tree uh, shrubbery, that type of stuff. And and the other beauty is is that the the cattle when they consume uh, some of those parasites, they'll consume parasites that uh, uh, affect the sheep more than the cows, right? And so when the sheep come back through there, there's less parasitic load in the in the grasses because the cows have taken care of most of that, and vice versa with the sheep. Now. Scientifically, is that accurate? I don't know, but I've seen it to be uh, beneficial uh, in my own experience. So uh, we continue to do that. We only have um, two of our pastures, about 20 acres, that I'm able to run both sheep and cows on um, because of perimeter fencing. We have coyotes and things like that, Uh, but I'd like to incorporate more of that as I grow my my flock. So um, we have about 25 sheep now. I hope to get up to 50, and whenever I get closer to that, then I'm going to have to start uh, improving the fence line, uh, which will enable me to do more of a follow leader follower relationship with my, my uh, sheep and cows. Yeah, I think multi-species grazing is something that is really important. Um, it, it seems like it also can be quite challenging to implement at first, and it's a lot of experimentation. So yeah. I'm curious, you know, in, in general, right, you said 2016, I believe you got to 70 acres, um, so it's been a bit, a bit of time, at least that's passed. Have you noticed, or how have you noticed the the quality of the soil change over those, um, you know, past seven years? And are you now able, because of that improvement, uh, to have a higher carrying capacity? And is that something you're tracking? Is that something you've measured with soil quality measurements? Um, or kind of, yeah, how do you go about gauging that? Yeah, so when, when we uh, bought the land, they were running 15 head of cow on this land, just open grazing, uh, 15 to 17, I think it was, um, which, you know, they probably weren't utilizing to its maximum uh, potential. But, you know, cows, they'll go and they'll eat what they want to eat. So they'll go eat up all of the candy, if you will. And then um, they'll just continue to move across the land, eating up the candy. Uh, and eventually all of the candy grasses, they'll die off and then you'll have nothing but the broccoli living, right? The stuff that they don't want to eat, uh, you know, the thistles and, and, and the weeds. And so after so many years of that, you can't, um, you can't carry as many cows and keep them healthy. And that's kind of the state that things were in. Um, when we've got here again, just practicing rotational grazing helps fix that. It forces the, the, uh, 
livestock to consume everything that's there. And then they also trample down uh, the things that they don't want to eat, right? And so that gives an opportunity for the good grasses, the beneficial grasses to grow and, and ultimately overtake um, you know, all of that, uh, all of that broccoli, I call it all of the stuff that cows don't want to eat, right? Relationship to a kid wanting to eat candy versus broccoli. Um, now we still have a lot of weeds, right? We still have thistles and things like that, that I'm, I'm trying to combat. Um, and w- which case we'll go and we'll mow, mow, uh, uh, down the pasture. So typically in the spring, I have to go out and mow, uh, just to knock down my, uh, uh the weeds and then the, the winter grasses that, are uh, going dormant just to make room for the uh, summer perennials to come through. Um, also, though, we have put in um, several hundred tons of chicken manure that we brought into the land and had spread on the property. So we use that as a fertilizer. We don't use any uh, uh, chemical petroleum-based fertilizers, no herbicides, no pesticides. Uh, and so I brought in a bunch of uh, chicken manure um, to help augment the sandy soil that we have because it has a lot of organic matter to it, plus it has a good nitrogen load. Um, and then, of course, incorporating uh, the, uh, you know, we, we do do broiler chickens, and so we move them every day. Uh, that, again, adds a, a, a lot of uh, organic matter to the soil. Uh, so now I am uh, I'm able to run about, uh, about 50 head of cow, um, of course, I have to bring in hay in the winter or, or I have to harvest hay and then I bring in some hay. Uh, but we run 50 head of cattle. Uh, we're running about 25 sheep. We have uh, somewhere about 25 pigs uh, a year on, out on pasture. And we do 2,000 broilers a year, um, as well as about 300 laying hens that are out there. So if you look at the, you know, the total um, uh, pounds of protein, that are out here, uh, it's, it's far exceeds what, what they had when we bought the place. And we're continuing to, like I said, we, we brought in several hundred thousands of pounds of, uh, of wood chips. I'm looking out my window at them, uh, uh, to, uh, to help again, make it even better. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think it just goes to show, right. It's like, this open style grazing method is really detrimental. And I see it all the time because there's so much public land out Mm -hmm. here, uh, BLM grazing contracts. And whenever I'm driving through Wyoming, it's just, it's a shame, but you know, that management really is the key to utilizing land better. And this is why, you know, we always get into this discussion of is regenerative agriculture scalable and things like that. And it's like, yeah, well it, it could be, but what what is the effort that we're willing to put in because you need to know what you're doing you need to you know scale up appropriately and it's more effort right i mean if you just throw was the 15 cattle out there in the beginning you know they're not doing much management it's just kind of letting them graze what the candy like they want and but eventually that'll kind of lead to a decline in the productivity um and as well i want to highlight how important it is that you know each homestead, each piece of land is unique. So you're saying your soil is sandy. So you're bringing in this chicken manure, these wood chips to add some more organic matter, um, help with the nitrogen ratio. And that's important as well, because there is no like recipe for success in land management. Uh, You're in central or, you know, you're in Texas, kind of outside of Austin. Um, We're up in the mountain West, even in different places of Utah or Wyoming, it could be a totally different ecosystem environment and 
and you can read as many books and videos uh, and attend classes as you want, which will give you the foundational principles of thinking about how to solve these problems. But at the end of the day, your system, your land is, is going to be totally yeah. unique. And you kind of need to understand that and then experiment. So um, I'm, I'm curious as well, like, do you think your what are your thoughts on on how do we get more people to do these management practices, multi-species grazing? Does it have to be at this smaller scale or, you know, how do we fix something like these open large plots of grazing uh, for say BLM land or have you put much thought into that kind of scaling this whole movement of holistic management? Yeah, I, I, I can't really speak to, um, you know, what goes on in your area. Uh, but what I would say here in Texas, so, so everything is really situational dependent. And so in Texas, you have a lot of small, you know, hundred acre, um, a couple hundred acres, uh, and then they put the cows out there, but they don't live on the land. Right. And so they live somewhere else. They really want the land for a hunting lease or something like that. And they put the cattle out there to get a, a you know, a re reduction in their, uh, property tax value. And it's more about, having space to go play on the weekends and a reduction in the property tax value. Right. And so they don't have to pay as much in taxes. And so to, to physically um, uh, rotationally graze the animals, you have to be present, right? You have to be out here. In my case, I try to move them every day. Right. And so you have to be able to study the land. You have to be able to watch and see, you know, are they, is it time to move the animals? Well, you can't do that if you're not living on the land. Right. And I can't imagine how you would do that with several hundred thousand acres of BLM land. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I, I don't know how you could scale it from that perspective. Uh, I, I think it would be a real challenge. But for something like, you know, a couple hundred acres where you live on the land, uh, it's definitely something that you can do. Yeah, because that was actually a question I was thinking about, too, because we talk about this stuff all the time. But it's like the scale. I think everyone I think everyone's idea when they would hear it, it would be like, oh, it sounds great, but how do you scale that to produce for the masses? And that's where I think it's it's important to sort of, on a decentralized uh, fashion, sort of, that's where it's important to sort of operate on a local level, like support your local farmers and things like that. Go to farmers markets Definitely. and be more proactive in that sense from a consumer perspective, at least in my mind, because I feel like it's going to look, I don't know how it's going to look in the future because obviously I'm not super involved in the actual process of you're seeing it on the front lines, whereas I'm kind of seeing it secondhand through your eyes. And so, but what I do understand is like, like you mentioned, like the management level is not the same as throwing cattle out there and leaving them for six months and then coming to check on them or whatever on a hundred thousand square acres of land or whatever it is. So you're operating and moving these cattle sometimes even multiple times a day, I've heard, depending on what your operation looks like. And so it is a lot more management heavy. And so I, I think a question, and Tristan kind of just asked this in a sense, but I was curious from like, on a, and maybe maybe you just answered it and, then, and maybe it's just a redundant question, but it's in my mind, it's like, I feel like we need to not necessarily, I don't know if scale down is the right word, but we need to think on a more localized level with these things in order to make them more predominant. So we need, we just need more of them in, in areas. And so I, I, I just, it's like, how do we incentivize 
even the farmers, like you said, who are sort of like want this for hunting lease or wanting to like use this land for other personal purposes or tax purposes or any of this stuff. Where's the, we need to have some sort of incentive, I think, to even build it out. And, and cause in the, I don't think people are really thinking about these things in the long term. I'm sure some people are and some farmers are as well, but it's like long term for the beneficiary of the, of the land and, and the benefit of the land itself. I feel like there needs to be more operations like this in order to, to benefit the soil and all that stuff that's been so depleted over the last hundred years of conventional farming, you know? So it's like, how think, do we... Ryan, I, yeah, I think what you're trying to say is like, there's so much land that's going to be exchanged, right? I think hmm. um, like 300 million acres of land is going to exchange hands. And by 2030 or sometime in the next decade, a lot of farmers are old. You know, how do we get more people to do what you're doing and not turn into a more centralized big ag operation or millionaires just buying for their aesthetic um, grounds? Yeah, I, I I don't know the answer. I, I I think part of the problem is that uh, food is just too cheap, right? The the true cost of the food um, we don't understand, we don't appreciate. And I think if food was valued where it should be valued, what it really costs, then more people would take an active role in providing food and things like maximizing the amount of. Uh, protein that you can get up per acre is something that would be, uh, you know, first and foremost in their minds. And it would encourage people then to uh, become farmers and, and actually take an active role in producing food because then it would be more financially viable. Uh, a, a lot of the folks doing what I'm doing are doing it from the perspective of trying to heal the land, trying to provide good animal welfare. And so there's all of these other non-tangible things that have no monetary value that'll ever pay off for themselves, right? Um, and so you actually have to have a passion to want to make a change. Um, because like I said before, it's very expensive and very time consuming uh, to do this. Uh, and so I think, I mean, the only thing I can think is that, you know, we have fiat food that is paid for with fiat money and it's super cheap and people don't have to pay for all of the externalities that exist around cheap food, right? We have the most expensive health costs in the world here in this country. Um, we're just losing, you know, all of this topsoil. We have all of this, you know, pollution and, and, and other things that are never accounted for in the, um, you know, in the, the cost of what it takes for, to produce food. And so until we fix that, I don't see that this is really ever going to change. We're just going to have a few folks like myself, um, you know, trying to make a difference because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and, and it's so true, right? And we'll definitely get into the fiat food system a bit here. But in general, there is still so much opportunity to do this. And, you know, we're talking about people just buying this land for hunting or aesthetics or their third, fourth home. Um, it's bad, but also it does create an opportunity, right? Because there is a high sticker price. There's a high cost of entry to do what you're doing. You know, if you want to buy 70, 100 acres, for example, you need... Who knows, half a million dollars and then you need to build a house, all that stuff depends the location. But in general, you could have 10 acres and then you could lease this land for very low amounts of money from these folks who don't want to manage the yeah. land. And, you know, we were both at, uh, you know, the Beef Initiative in Crawford, Colorado, Jason Rick. He does, you know, he manages a couple thousand acres of land, which uh, the majority are leased. And, and that's just an example. And, and he's been doing that for a bit. But it doesn't. You don't have to even be close to that scale. 
So I think it's just sensing if you do want to be a part of this, you want to make that change in the world and be you know part of the solution rather than contributing to the problem of our centralized food system. There are these opportunities out there, but in general, I also you know we talked about the importance of you know localization and direct to consumer and you know the quality of food. So I want to talk about you know the difference in quality from what you're doing, especially I mean you raise grass fed, grass finished beef. Your pork looks like incredible. It's, it looks like some of the best pork I've ever seen. I need to try some, but that's because you're doing it like in a more ancestral or a more consistent way with what they would be eating. They're rooting, right. they're on forage and pasture, finishing on acorns, the stark red meat. So I guess talk a little bit, and you already mentioned, you know, why does, how, why do people need to start thinking about like dollar per nutrient over just the dollar per calorie or just dollar cost? Because I totally agree with you. I think this whole food system, centralized food system has kept food prices so artificially low that now people just get sticker shock when they go to a high quality operation like yourself, potentially at the farmer's market. But there's really a lot more quality there and nutrients there that probably comes out in their favor in the long run, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, people smarter than I can talk to you all about the, uh, you know, the, the health benefits of eating pasture raised meats. Um, but what I, what I like to focus on is it just tastes so much better, right? I mean, everybody can appreciate the, the, the delightful flavor that you get from pasture raised meats. Um, and so from my perspective, if you're going to spend all of that time going to the grocery store, bringing it home, defrosting it, cooking it for your family and end up with something that has no flavor at all, well, you just wasted a whole bunch of time. Right. And why do that? And then you can throw in all of the health benefits and things like that on top of it, knowing that you're providing a good source of nutrition for your family. Um, but I really focus on the flavor because I think that's the, the number one thing that, that, uh, that people recognize I can, I, they can tangibly tell what the impact is uh, of grass fed meat, right? They don't need a scientific study. They can put it in their mouth. They know that the texture is better. They know that the flavor is better. Uh, so that's what I like to focus on. I just love the flavor. You know, actually what got me into grass fed beef is, uh, is I, I started, um, hunting and, and so venison, it's just so much richer in flavor. And I was like, wow, you know, and that all they eat is leaves and grass. And so can I replicate that? And so, uh, so that's why we started raising beef and, and lamb, uh, you know, grass fed. So I, I'm sure you could talk more about the, the health benefits than I can from what I see. You're, you're much more schooled than I am. Yeah, well, we had Stefan Van Fleet, who's leading all this research on. You can go listen to that episode. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but I think what you're saying is it's kind of almost just summarizing already what you said. It's like people need to be more conscious about that because it is real food. It's, it's quality. So you don't, you don't even need the research to know that it's going to be better. For unfortunately, like it's, it's obvious. Yeah, un unfortunately, people don't know what real food tastes like. And, and that's a tragedy, right? I mean... <clears throat> They just never have tasted it. So they have no idea that the food is actually supposed to be delicious and delightful and, and re-energizing because they've never been exposed to it. If you didn't grow up in the 1950s, you don't know what real food tastes like.
Yeah, it's actually pretty hilarious because um, this happened to me the other day where I just bought like three pounds of just grass-fed, grass-finished beef, got a good deal on it um, at uh, at a farmer's market near my house. And uh, I brought it over to my girlfriend's family's house and I was going to just cook dinner for everybody. So we did like, I think two pounds of beef or maybe we did all of them. But uh, uh, my girlfriend's mom came in to taste the meat after it had been browned and cooked. And she thought it was rotten because she had never, never eaten grass fed beef. She thought it tasted completely off. Yeah. And I just thought that was the funniest thing because it does, it does have like a different taste and like grass fed steak has a different smell to, to grain fed steak. And so I think it actually shocks a lot of people. I, I just thought it was so funny that she thought it was actually rotten. Uh, it just, I just couldn't believe it. I've gotten a lot of people that have actually tried to, you know, I think beef is tough because people are so used to that fatty grain finishing that some people, you know, still say grass fed beef tastes bad and whatever. I mean, that's on them. But I think the biggest difference and probably you might agree is is in the chicken and pork because just chicken and pork raised by, you know, the industrial overlords of Tyson and whoever are they're just so devoid of flavor. And that's why you have to put so much seasoning on them. And then you look at like your deep, rich red pork finished on acorns and the the chicken we had. I had a, a whole chicken from Minch Dumkey who we interviewed on this podcast. And I was the first time I had chicken that I think actually tasted like full of flavor and probably my whole life. You know, a lot of people, um, they, they do have that reaction with grass fed beef. And I, I find it, odd because again that's what beef is supposed to taste like and a lot of it too is um you know the dry aging process it is a very delicate thing to do uh so it is you know when you dry age meat effectively it starts to rot right the the enzymes are breaking down the muscle tissue to make it more tender and so that's a science in and of itself and it needs to be done correctly um and so i i think a good transition is is maybe having some grass-fed beef that's been only been dry-aged for one week, maybe two weeks. Sometimes people push that to three weeks, and that gives it that real strong bouquet, if you will, right? Uh, and anything longer than that is, is on the edge. Um, but I think it's a, it's a flavor that should be appreciated because really, when we talk about nutrition, that's all of those minerals in the meat, right, that you don't get from feeding it corn. Uh, and, and, and again, just people aren't used to that. Uh, I think another lie too is, uh, you know, the flavors in the fat. Well, if you've ever had a wild game, there's a tremendous amount of flavor and very little fat, right? And, and so we just need to recalibrate our taste buds. I mean, I, I love a fatty piece of meat. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong, but I like a fatty piece of grass fed meat where I can get a good robust muscle tissue and, and, a, and a nice, um, you know, yellow, creamy, uh, you know, fat as well. And, and I know that it's just loaded with uh, micronutrients. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, I think a lot of this stuff that we're talking about kind of goes back to even, even from the regenerative agriculture uh, standpoint, when we're talking about all the farming and stuff like that, is that it comes back to education. I think it's about informing people because I mean, it's just goes back to the simple fact that most people just simply don't know anything about the food they eat. They don't know where it comes from. Maybe they don't want to know. And they don't know, definitely don't know the process from where it went from farm to table. They definitely don't understand that in the conventional sense. And so I think the more we have people like yourself on the podcast that are on the front lines who see this every day, the more 
of that information we can get out to people that are just learning this stuff. And I think it's about really getting people to understand the importance of the quality of their food. And I was talking about, I mean, we talk about this all the time about you may spend a few extra dollars at the farmer's market, but you're getting such higher quality worth of food. Like you're getting way more amino acids, way more vitamins and minerals from grass-fed, grass-finished, you know, regeneratively raised meat than going to the store and buying whatever, $3.99 generically uh, produced beef. You're getting a lot more too, right? So it doesn't have this high moisture content. You know, a lot of times they pump these things full of, of salt and water. Yes. Uh, and you're paying for water that you can see evaporate while you're cooking it. Uh, so from, from just a, a, a pure economic standpoint, it's really not that much difference in, in price. Yeah. And also you're not getting chicken washed in chlorine. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's a win-win all around. I, it's just, it's just simple basics. It's going back to like, what are your priorities as a person and getting those in line? I think just people just, I think people live such busy lives, whether it's actually busy or they make it busy for themselves that they just don't think about what are these priorities in my life. I mean, like we were talking about at the very beginning, beginning of the podcast, it's like many people just are so burnt out at the end of the day or by Friday night that they just want to crack open a beer and watch the game. And I get that. I totally understand the mindset of that. And that's where we have to sort of meet them where they are and get them to think about, hey, is this how you want to live the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life? Or do you want to make some real change, stay out of the hospital and and all these things when you're in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, when you're talking about retirement today, trying to get there, maybe you should actually get to a place where you can actually enjoy that time. And so I, I would argue too that if you uh, ate better, you wouldn't be burnt out at the end of the day, right? And if you put that beer totally, away, totally. you could actually make some improvements in your life and, and get something done uh, and, and feel a lot better as a result. So, yeah, eat, eat better food, fuel your body, and it'll, you know, pay rewards. Yeah, no, totally. And then, I mean, if you're outside a lot of the day, like you are doing real manual labor, you don't need to go to the gym and, you're kind of just reaping the benefits of, of nature as well. Yeah. So something we've also talked about, you know, the importance of, you know, farmers markets, buying local, direct to consumer. I think this is, you would agree with kind of the only way that it, you make it work, right? Like a lot of the issues with, uh, you know, producers still, ranchers is that they're wholesaling and yeah. getting pennies on the dollar of the end um, product, uh, which is a shame. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you have kind of gone about this style of, you know, selling, uh, what have you learned? Um, how can people, you know, transition to a more direct to consumer model and, and what are the biggest challenges? And then I also want to get into, you know, maybe talking about fiat money and, and Bitcoin a little bit as well. Yeah. So, so we, we sell all of our product at the farmer's market direct to consumer. Uh, we don't ship anything, uh, not to say that I would never go there. Um, but right now, you know, I feel it's important. I, we have enough, you know, population density around here um, that that uh, I don't feel I need to ship. Um, but I, I like I, there's a lot to be said for the educational aspect of being able to speak directly to your farmer, to your rancher. Right. And, and ask those questions. And, and I like to educate people about how we do things and, and uh, you know, why they should eat our meat and stuff like that. So though the farmer's market is very taxing and time consuming, uh, it's also kind of like my social hour. 
right? And so I, I get to go out there and, and interact with people and talk passionately about something that I, that I work hard for and I really love. Um, but I understand that, you know, not everybody has the time. You got, you know, four or five screaming kids and, and you know, going to the farmer's market is a real chore. Uh, and, and so, you know, although it could be, you know, a good outing for your family, um, if you, if you, you know, frame it in the right way. Um, but I also understand that people have are busy and, and have a lot of things to do. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of good companies out there that are shipping and there's really no excuse for, for not, you know, getting your meat directly from your farmer. Um, the, the flip side of that is, is where does your food come from, right? You don't know where your food comes from. You have no idea. It may say product of the USA on it, but it likely is not, right? And so it's raised in some apartment complex in, in China. Um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, they're turning a lot of these buildings in China that they built, you know, these, these cities, uh, and they're raising pigs in them on concrete. Uh, you know, they're, they're living in their own feces. Um, you don't know what they're feeding them. The label for organic, uh, in the U S is pretty stringent. Uh, but pretty much all of these other countries can get away with saying organic and there's no oversight whatsoever. So they can just slap a label on it, ship it to the U S sell it as a product of the USA organic. Uh, and I don't think that's right. And I think consumers need to be aware of that. So, you know, if you're not buying from your, your rancher or farmer and, you know, and you don't know where it comes from, likely, uh, you should start asking those questions. Uh, so, yeah, so we, we, we sell at the farmer's markets. I, I, you know, I would, shipping is a whole nother enterprise that, uh, I don't have the bandwidth for, of course it comes with its own risks. Um, and, and our operation right now is it big enough to really justify it? So, yeah, no, I think that that's all important. It's you know we talk about a good amount on here is that's the benefit of going to the farmers market, right? And well, you're rewarding your local producer for putting in this effort and, and going to the farmers market, but then you can verify that quality. Like right. that's the benefit of going. You can ask them questions. I mean, I'm sure you'd let anyone come visit and, and see the operation as well if, if they really wanted to. And yeah, there's so much, you know, greenwashing and just like sketchy things going on in the grocery store. You really can't trust them. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I think it's important as well. You mentioned you're in a, you know, you have a large population density. I think that's something also people really need to consider if they're picking out a homestead is a, yeah, start small. Cause then you don't want to bite off more than you can chew, or you might end up wholesaling and then getting less, you know, a uh, dollar per animal. And then also, you know, think about what's your end market. Who are you going to sell to if you do want to go that route? Because, you know, for example, up in Wyoming, yeah, it doesn't exist, right? Like you really have to think about it. And I have done a lot of this shipping for, you know, uh, a bison ranch working with, and it's a pain in the ass to ship meat, especially. Yeah. So these are all things you, you need to think about. But uh, I'm curious, you know, getting more into the, you know, the monetary side of things, right? I think Mitch uh, on our, our one episode is talking about like that soil and that increase in carrying capacity. That's kind of like the savings of your ranch, right? You're able to build upon that year on year. And that's kind of like going to help propel you forward to stay, you know, afloat. Um, whereas opposed to, you know, traditional methods, conventional are, are the opposite. And that's why so many farmers 
are going bankrupt. It's high input, high output. So there's a lot more expenses up front. So how do you, I know you value, you know, Bitcoin as a currency, you know, quite heavily because cash flow is, is really important in an operation. So how do you see Bitcoin as kind of helping more producers, yourself, stay afloat? And how do we kind of help propel this exchange of value for value forward even more so? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think farmers and ranchers can easily have an affinity for for Bitcoin because they appreciate um, you know something that's real and that that has value and maintains value. Uh, so, like you know, like you said, I think Will Will Harris says uh, you know the land is his savings account and his livestock are his checking account, right? Um, so for me. Uh, you know, I don't do a whole lot of volume in Bitcoin. Um, I wish I would do more. Uh, I would gladly accept Bitcoin uh, for no other reason than to deny the the existing infrastructure the opportunity to have you know uh, control over my assets. Right? Um, I, I I strongly believe that if we continue to engage in in the fiat system that exists that we're only supporting that type of a system so just like if you go shop at your local farmers market and you support the agricultural system well if you engage in you know trade in US dollars then you're supporting you know the industrial military complex which just takes the revenue of, you know the 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 inflationary um uh theft out of that money um and all the corporate corruption and then they go kill, kill ch other children in other countries, right? And, and I'm totally against that. Uh, so my passion for Bitcoin really comes around being able to interact, just like I do at the farmer's market, but interact with one another on, on a peer-to-peer -peer level and, and really exchange value for value. And, you know, if I accept do U.S. dollars today, um, you know, five years from now, they're not going to be worth as much. Uh, with Bitcoin, uh, sure, it might go up and down in the in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to retain its value. Yeah, hundred percent. And I always find it quite ironic when I'm like paying at a farmer's market with Venmo or like a credit card. I feel like it's it doesn't even really make sense because it's, it's almost like you're you're person to person, but then you're not on the the currency side of things. So, you know, do you talk to, I'm sure you talk to a lot of other producers at these farmers markets, like what's kind of the, you know, feel for, are they open to, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, what's a good way to get more producers on this wavelength? Because I think they do have the right mindset, but it's also something that's just so foreign to them um, to conceptualize really. I, I I think that the best way is to get the consumer on board, right? Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> it frustrates me to no end whenever I, I see people on Twitter talking about never spending their Bitcoin, right? I, I mean, it, it's never going to become the vehicle that it can become unless we use it, right? And so if more and more uh, consumers come up to their farmer and say, hey, do you accept Bitcoin? Then they'll start accepting Bitcoin. Right. Because it's that's what they do. They're in, in business to, you know, take revenue um, and they would love to not have to pay Square or, or any other credit card handling mm -hmm. company, you know, almost three um, uh, percent. So I, th I think that's the first thing. And so I challenge all of your listeners. I, I, I plead with you, go out there and, you know, ask, do you accept Bitcoin and then be willing to use it? 
I've had people come to the farmer's market with a Bitcoin t-shirt on and, and I say, Hey, you know, I accept Bitcoin. And they're like, Oh yeah, here's my credit card. You know, it's like, okay, are you a principled person or are you not? Right. It's, do you want this to grow or not? Um, so again, I, you know, I think convincing the farmer, um, is not a hard thing. That's the easy thing. Uh, the, the, the hard thing is getting the, your everyday consumer out there to value Bitcoin, to start using Bitcoin, uh, and, and yeah, just start using it. I, I don't understand why people don't use it. No, I, I think really that's, that's the key. We talk a lot about consumer purchasing power right. being the most impactful thing, regardless of it being from a Bitcoin perspective or from just the food choice perspective. If, you know, 50% more people just started shopping at, at farmer's right. markets or demanding higher quality products, that will drive more change. And that has the biggest impact. You buy food the most often. You can't really buy and many other things from small companies or local producers doesn't exist. This is the most impactful yep. voice you have in our society. It's not at the ballot box. Sorry to tell you. Yeah, definitely. Vote with your dollars, right? Or in this case, vote with your Bitcoin. Yeah. So I know, I mean, I, that's a good point too, because I've, I think I've asked like periodically um, about, you know, people accepting Bitcoin, but I haven't really asked like everybody. So I, I, I'm going to make that a point as well. I think I'm going to definitely go to farmer's market this Sunday. Ryan was just there. Um, just, yeah, ask them. Even if you know the answer is going to be no, just ask them and say, oh, you should accept Bitcoin in the future because, yeah, it, it'd be great to exchange this value for value if you've loved to learn about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, let's make it a point, everybody. If, if a half a dozen people come up to me at the farmer's market and ask me if I accept Bitcoin and I don't, then I'm going to be compelled to look into it, right? It's like, oh, that's a half a dozen people that are wanting to use Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin, right? And, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, all of you guys out there with Bitcoin, guys and girls, um, you know, just ask the question, even if you're not going to use it, right? Just ask the question. Uh, be mm -hmm. prepared to use it. If you find, you know, find a, a, a forward-thinking farmer, Um but yeah, just ask the question and let's start planting seeds. Yep. Could have said it better myself. I mean, Tristan, when, when we go out, if we go out this Sunday, we just got to tell them to start doing it because I guarantee you none of them are. Like I even talked to a few people about it. Like nobody. Yeah. And I got like five or six copies of my book. So I'm just going to bring it. And just bring your book. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your, your book good idea. Is, is phenomenal. I, 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 it's, a, it's a masterpiece. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. John, I know we're coming up on, on time here as well. So thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find you? What farmers markets are you at? You're only selling locally. So I know, unfortunately, if you want to try his delicious meat, you should, uh, you need to be in Texas, yeah. greater Austin area. Correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We sell at uh, Pflugerville, Hutto, Elgin and Taylor, Texas. Um, you can find us at uh, amberoaksranch.com. Uh, we're on all social media as uh, Amber Oaks Ranch uh, in some form or, or another. Uh, we do publish a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for. It's uh, it's pretty good little bit, especially if you're wanting some educational side of uh, farming and ranching. Uh, we publish little vignettes on what we're doing at the ranch. So uh, just to try to stay in touch with our customers. But there's also lots of good information out there about how to raise an animals, how we practice regenerative farming uh, that type of stuff. So yeah, amberoaksranch.com and come see us and uh, shake our hands at the market. Awesome. John, thank you so much. I need to get down there as well and, and see the operation with my own eyes. 
And thank you so much for what you do and and sharing your knowledge here. I appreciate it. And thanks again, everyone, for tuning in another episode of of Decentralized Radio. See you next time. Bye-bye.